Welcome to the Mavens Do It Better podcast. And now, your host, Heather Newman. Hello, everyone. Here we are again for another Mavens Do It Better podcast, where we interview extraordinary experts who bring a light to our world. And I could not be more excited to have Chandra Purnell Bond on today. Yay! So excited. (laughs) (laughs) We've been trying to do this for a while. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh, we're finally going to get it done. So I'm so happy. So where are you uh, speaking to us from today? I'm speaking to you from Phoenix. Well, the enclave is called Tolleson, but it's really Phoenix. Arizona. Okay, great. And I am coming to you all from my HQ here in uh, Marina del Rey, California, as usual. So yeah, so Um. goodness. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. I think it's probably kind of hot there, huh? Yes, it's 108 to me. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. That's a stay at home day. That's, that's a, you don't have to worry about social distancing because I'm not going outside. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, we, we've met now, it's been a while now. We've been sort of Follow each other on social media, and we met through a mutual friend of ours. Yes, correct. Yes, and, uh, and so we've been talking about gosh, music and all kinds of stuff over the last while, and um, and so I was like, well, I want to hear more about what you do, how you came up in the world, and all that kind of stuff. So, so will you tell everybody what you do for a living? Yes, um, I'm actually retired, but yes. I have a company called Step Into My Cipher Entertainment. And what that does is encompasses all of our family businesses, um, one being executive and personal security, one is voiceover, and one is music mentoring and management. So I took all of the careers that I've had in the past and sort of uh, all of our family members have, you know, a piece um, within that family business. So um, Step Into My Cypher really is what I call a connector. It's a networking company. It's a marketing company. It's a, you know, all things to everyone, renaissance a renaissance type company um, because I find myself in the role of mommy, sometimes therapist, babysitter, uh, you know, I negotiate contracts. I, you know, find things that can't be found normally. You know, it's, it's one of those type companies where it's a catch all for a lot of different things. So that's why we left it open and said entertainment. Cool. Where did the name come from? Seven to my cipher was a name that um, I picked up in college because I used to always say, oh, we're going to get in the cipher and spit. And when I was an MC and people kept saying, well, that's CY. And as my career progressed, I ended up working for a defense company. And they said, well, if you're going to talk about ciphers, well, we talk about ciphers. We talk about a very close knit circle of people who really, you know, have things in common, who really can move things forward. Um, and only those people have that information. And I said, oh. I need to change. It's not going to be C-Y-P-H-E-R as in hip hop, but now it's going to be C-I-P-H-E-R as in all the people around me, you know, have the same skill, similar skill sets or they're able to, you know, move culture forward. Right. And how wonderful that you are supporting, I mean, your family and all of that stuff too, because sometimes, you know, you get people doing all kinds of different things and being able to bring that together to build something is really cool. That's neat. That's really neat. Yeah. And, and so you, so you had a career, so the, well, we don't necessarily have to say the name of the Multiple company. Careers. <laughs> <laughs> you had a million ton of careers, right? Um, so I've had, yeah. so I started out um, when I went to school, I actually graduated early from high school. I got a pre, pre-admit to um, what they call pre-college um, at Hampton University and well, it was Hampton Institute then. And at that time I wanted to be a psychologist. So my, you know, major basically with psychology with a minor in business. But when I got there, I realized that I really had more of a business slant. Um, Everything I was interested in had to do with either finance or accounting or marketing or economics. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and switch my major. Well, it was not a great thing because at that time they lost their accreditation. So (laughs) I ended up, you know, deciding to leave that particular school and I um, moved back to Baltimore and um, ended up at Coppin State. And that's a more of a working college, but it's also an HBCU. Um, They didn't even have a dorm at that time. That's how, you know, kind of urban it was. And everybody there worked uh, and went to school. Uh, And what coming into that school was was a shock to me because I was so used to sort of upper class, very privileged, uh, not only say snooty, but very uh, accomplished families. And this was more of an urban environment. So I had to really adjust um, and get used to being back in the Baltimore environment, I did very well at Coppin, uh, ended up switching my major and still focused on psychology with the minor in business. Uh, but I changed the focus to drug counseling. 
And so I became a drug and addictions counselor right out of college and I worked with homeless and HIV clients, which was very stressful for me, uh, very hard on a person, you know, just coming out of school because you don't have the, the, the world experience to be able to deal with some of the problems that they're addressing to you. So, you know, I would get the threats and the, what do you know, kid type thing. And I really enjoyed that job though, um, going out into the field and talking with people and really getting to know, you know, what people's struggles were, uh, what the issues of social justice and criminal reform needed to be, things of that sort. And um, once I decided I was going to do that, I did that for a few years and the business kept calling me. Um, when I was in college, I wrote a lot. So I was a poet. Uh, I was with the models. I was always doing something very creative. And one of my friends named Ev Money, he nicknamed me MC Chela. And he said, you need to have a moniker and a way to describe yourself. That's sort of your persona. It's not really you. And at that time, it felt like it was right to sort of bring that back. But my mom, believe it or not, even though I was an adult, pulled me aside and she said, you as a woman trying to be in the entertainment business, I can really see you having a struggle because you don't listen to authority well. <laughs> and you really want to be your own creative person. And within the industry, she had been, you know, one of the booking agent, talent agent type thing for her university. Uh, she had dated a few celebrities by that time. So she was just like, I'm telling you from experience, you've been to New York, you, you always have hung in Atlanta and Dallas and all over the place. So you've seen it, you know, growing up with her. And she was just like, this is not the place for you. So what I would like you to do now, this is not really a request. If you're from the South, you know, Black mothers don't really request. They kind of tell you, but it was more of a, you have in your family, the first Black doctor in your town. You have, you know, people in your family who are the first in all the things they've ever done. And I want you to be the first in something. So I want you to go back and get your MBA. And I would like you to go back and help those kids who really didn't have an understanding of the music business before. And really guide them forward. So, you know, take law classes, do what you have to do, but you can do your art as a hobby. I don't want it to be your profession. Right. That's some good advice, I think, you know, I mean, that's, and you know how, and then wonderful that she felt like she could say that to you too, right. you know what yeah. I mean? And it would be heard. That's, and that, and then you've dedicated your career to so many different things. And And that job was when you were doing the drug counseling, that was in the kind of early, what, 90s, right? So it's kind right. of at the height of the HIV. Crack, yes, yeah. and crack epidemic. It was towards the tail end of crack and heroin. Heroin has always been really um, the prevalent drug sort of in Baltimore area. So mm -hmm. it wasn't as much crack as it was heroin, which is worse. Yeah. <laughs> but worse not in terms of a drug, but worse in terms of the epidemic. Right. And um, dealing with the crises that, you know, came out of that, uh, a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, having to carry a gun even when you didn't want to, those type of things. And, you know, coming out of that period of working with people with HIV, AIDS, and um, other, you know, m major autoimmune diseases, I ended up having an affinity, I guess you want to say, for people who are underserved populations. And so all of this, you know, social justice background, you know, criminal justice reform. Um, I, be, I was a, criminal, a congressional page when I was in high school. Um, I was in the Young Democrats. I was with the Governor's Youth Advisory Council. So I was always, you know, doing something around criminal justice reform and, you know, people who didn't quite have, you know, the same opportunities that I had. Um, and I've actually, you know, sat down and talked with other women who said, well, weren't you discriminated against? Have you ever experienced racism? Have you ever just, you know, experienced the glass ceiling? And I said, I didn't experience it until I was almost 40. And the reason why is because I always competed on education. And so if somebody said, oh, you have to get a master's, I went and got a master's. If someone said you need to go to this company in order to move forward and propel yourself forward, then I would, you know, apply for that company. So I moved from being a counselor to the nonprofit in area. Um, I worked for the American Counseling Association and American Society for Training and Development. And at that time, facilitation sort of bridged the gap between those two worlds. I was right. able to go teach classes or conferences of 10,000, but then also go to, you know, the local, you know, organization and be able to sit down and speak with 10 women who had just gotten out of prison. So it really helped me to hone those skills and bring everything together. Right. Um, and then I got the call <laughs> uh, to be more into the financial realm and train to be a stockbroker, but realized I didn't want to take money from people that didn't have it. 
And so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it moved me forward into what do I want to do next? Um, I applied for a PhD program. I went for a year and I decided teaching full time was probably not going to be the best for me. I ended up, you know, kind of regrouping and worked for the defense industry for 15 years. And that's totally, you know, against everything that you would think about, about creativity and, <laughs> you know, being vibrant and being a woman even. Um, and I don't have military background. So it was very challenging and difficult to be in that industry. And that's where I kept, you know, striving forward, but kept bumping my head and, and finding that there were things that I would not be able to accomplish in that company. Um, and I ended up getting sick, actually, while I was there. <clears throat> Didn't realize I was sick. I was facilitating one day and, you know, start, sort of started getting sweaty. And it felt like almost an anxiety attack. And I said, oh, something's not right. And um, found out I was a diabetic and I had already been experiencing some other health challenges. So it progressively got worse and I decided to medically retire. So that's why I'm so young and retired and kind of have the freedom and flexibility to you know, take Six Sigma and facilitation and therapy and music and whatever, and really blend that all into what I do on a daily basis. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and at the company was a lot of, you were really doing a lot of training and learning for them, right? Yes. And I became a certified professional learning and performance because of my role that I used to have the American Society in Training and Development. I was a, just basically a secretary when I first started there and worked my way up. Um, all the way, you know, all the way up to actually working on curriculum, doing meetings and event planning, that type of thing, and got the opportunity to work on a small little project where they were talking about we need to have certification in the industry. And I said, hey, I have, you know, experience with that. I have worked on um, credentialing at the American Counseling Association. I've worked with NIMH. I work with Porter Novelli. I work with the FBI, some other um, corporations, and I'd love to be on that committee. Well, at the end of it, they said, well, we're going to give you guys the opportunity to take this test. And if you can pass the test, then we know that it may be a little too easy. So, we're gonna, you know, we're going to keep working on this credentialing, but right. we want you to go through the process the same way that a candidate would go through the process. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go through, you know, get vetted the same way that anyone on the outside would do that and ended up working for the defense company and going back and taking the certified uh, credential. Uh, so I was heavily involved at ASTD for about 20 years. Right. Wow. How is, and do you, for someone who's gone through the Six Sigma, you know, you're an expert in that and all of that, is that something that you recommend for folks? Yes, I actually do. If you're interested in quality control, if you're interested in, in statistics, anything that really has to do with making sure a product or a process is from end to end, you know, yeah. going to get better with time, mm-hmm. then I think that's good for people, especially especially if you're bored in your particular area. I hate to say bored, but if you're, you know, trying to figure out where you want to go next, it was a very good transition for me to go from one to the other. And then when I left the company, I was, you know, in quality control. So that, again, is something that I never thought I would find myself in. But when your company is rewarding you for saving millions of dollars, that is a reward in and of itself. Yeah, I, I think I've written a few ISO documents in my time. You Many. Know? <laughs> MMI documents, ISO, I mean, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's like you get thrown into situations where you're like, well, somebody needs to do this. And yeah. you're like, well, okay, I'll do it. It's a learning opportunity, right? And all of those things you take with you. That's super cool. I love your uh, your bookshelf behind you. Oh, thank you. Yes, I have several books I'm challenging people to read. So they they will call and say, well, can I borrow from your library? So I actually have a, a little checkout system set up. You do. Um, and then right now I'm working with my sons. Uh, there's a book called Invisible Man, Not the World Watching, um, A Young Black Man's Education by Michael Denzel Smith. So they'll pull off of my shelf and say, well, mom, I don't understand what's going on. I've never experienced this. So give me some reading, you know, help me. And so I have everything from biographies to travel books to, you know, womenist and feminist, you know, ideology. I have uh, a few religious books. I'm not really a religious person, but I do have the Talmud, the Torah, the Bible, that type of thing. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then there are books that explain their history. Um, Our family is from Baltimore, 
but it's black, it's Irish, it's British, it's German. Uh, we're also Sardinian, so Italian as well. Okay. And so explaining to them why we have blonde, blue-eyed people in the family, as well as people as brown as myself, you know, has been an education to sort of bring them to understand why, you know, we include everyone in the conversation. We have allies that we, you know, have conversations with and bring into conversations about race, about intersectional intersectionalism. I can never say that word. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, talking about, how we build the future for our country. So. Yeah, absolutely. What are the two books on your list that you've been recommending? So The White Use of Blacks in America, um, 350 Years of Law and Violence, Attitudes and Etiquette. Um, and that's a book that if you're in criminal justice, uh, some people you know recommend. And so that's this book. And that's oh. my Dan Lacey. Now you see my copy, my copy is well-worn. <laughs> right. And one of the other ones is the one I just referred to, which is The Invisible. Right man book so that's those those two are really you know decent of course there's other books you know that are out there and they're more popular but i like books that kind of speak to um things that i have a specific interest in or a specific question about so um i'll go put pick something off the you know the shelf and i'll say okay i want to read the bluest eye or you know i want to talk about let, let's talk about colorism today instead of racism let's mm -hmm. talk about you know having issues with the haves and the have-nots. Right. How do we talk about, you know, the top and bottom versus the left and right or the black and white? You know, how do we have those type of conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know. I think, you know, obviously, you know, with George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's going on right now, I think wherever we can talk to each other about these things and, and thanks for sharing the books. Um, I know that a lot of my listeners are always looking for how to educate themselves and, and I'm always looking for that too. I think, you know, it's and, and it's sharing not just like these are the five books that are, da, 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 but I, I, that that what you're saying, it's it's small the smaller pieces of understanding. I think sometimes that are, are specific to somebody's experience or their industry or you know all the different flavors of who they are in the world of understanding. Right. There's another group. Um, in in addition to Black Lives Matter, not to take anything away from them, but until freedom. Um, is a group by Tamika Mallory and my son, and they really fight, you know, for criminal justice reform, it's violence prevention, it's immigrant rights, it's cultural engagement, it's a lot of different aspects. And so, you know, when you hear people say, well, I only support Black Lives Matter, you support a lot of different organizations you don't realize, um, because you may retweet something, or the person may, you know, say, oh, I really like that quote. And it's not always from, you know, a particular movement. It right. may just be from a group of, or a collective group of intellectuals who've been, you know, talking on this narrative. It maybe have been from Cornell West. It may have been from, you know, someone else that you're not really aware of because you don't see them in the news a lot. And so that's the other thing that I've been talking to my allies about is really get educated. And it, it's not an uncomfortable education if you have compassion and empathy. If you don't, then don't be fake about it. You know what I mean? This, this, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Great. but if you if you really have a, a want to know, there's so many different you know groups and people who are speaking about what has happened to them. Um, for example, last year we were driving across country and got stopped in Tennessee. Well, wow. my brother's a, a police officer, and so we get these little coins that you put in the car, and it's sort of like you know you ask for a professional courtesy if you get pulled over. It, people don't know that, but you know some people do if you have family members who are correct in corrections and criminal justice. My mom was in corrections. We have a lot of people in my family who are police officers. So, you know, I, was, I wasn't I was startled, but um, unfortunately my husband, who my partner, who is a, a very large, bald black man, was very afraid. And I, I didn't understand why. And I'm looking at him like, be cool. You know, just, hey, you know, <laughs> we're going to tell him that we need a professional courtesy. He's like, it doesn't work like that for me. And so at that point, I got an education on you know, I'm privileged. I'm used to being around law enforcement. So, you know, not saying that I know what to say and not to you know, get pulled over, but there are certain conversations you can have where they go, oh, okay, you know, you're one of those. Um, you know, I've had the, the instances where I've been pulled over on the way to Mexico and I've had to say, hey, my next door neighbor is you guys' supervisor. Give him a call and he'll tell you I'm an upstanding citizen type thing. And those type of things are very, you don't realize that you have that privilege until you step back and look at it and go, wait a minute, I just pulled the, my neighbor's a cop. He's your supervisor card. Oh, that was, <laughs> you know, that, oh, that, that didn't feel real good um, because the other people in my car weren't quite as confident. They yeah. were very afraid and, and 
oh, what if they go through all our things? You know, what are our rights? Those type of things. And I've always been on that side of justice where I can say, I have a lawyer on speed dial and now I'm about to, you know, read my rights and then I'm going to repeat those. Not everybody's that calm when they experience law enforcement. Oh, yeah. Not everybody's that calm when they're in a, you know, in a bind. And, and when you're afraid and the adrenaline is running, not everybody's going to be that peaceful and, hey, you know, let's have a discussion here. So yeah. it doesn't always work. Yeah. And unfortunately, you never know how the other side of that right. is running whatever narrative that they have that's running. Right. Unfortunately. So yeah. we've seen that not go so well for so many, you know. I know. So, yeah. I've seen it not go so well in person. And yeah, right. Of course you have, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a thing that's prevalent, unfortunately. And hopefully we'll make, we're, we're making some headway to change, you know. And the, the, the mutual friend that we have, it's funny how I met that mutual friend was in 1989 at a public enemy concert. Uh, It was under the runs house tour um, down in Hampton Coliseum. And I became I don't want to say radicalized because that's not a great word to use, but I definitely went back and in my writing, you could tell it became really angsty and, you know, power to the people. And I want to, you know, get what was inside that rage became outward. All my writings really changed then. Um, I just published on Facebook not too long ago, one of my writings and people were like, wow, you know, I, I didn't expect that from you. <laughs> so it's really good when people say I didn't expect that from you because I can say, well, I'm multidimensional. I have a lot yeah. of different, you know, pieces to me. And, and most people do anyway. But, you know, right. looking at me and you look at my background on LinkedIn and you kind of look at, you know, where I live and people go, oh, she's just middle class. She's never experienced anything and, you know, whatever. And those type of things really have created a narrative. Uh, for example, you know, I mentioned my mom earlier, but my aunt also worked for the only FM urban station in our town um, at the time when I moved to Salisbury. I had another aunt, two aunts. That's why I said I've experienced violence in the family um, personally. Uh, two of my relatives, I have one aunt, my aunt Helene. Um, she experienced racism very early on in 79 in Florida, where her landlord decided that instead of having a conversation about the rent, she wanted to shoot her and oh my shot my aunt she shot one of her knees out. My aunt, not thinking, grabbed and reached for her gun, and they said it was premeditated. Well, she had never shot a gun before. She had no range experience like I do. She'd never, you know, been in a violent type situation, and she's very teeny. She's only 4'10". So <laughs> never really had gotten in a fight or anything, you know, of that sort, um, and ended up shooting the woman, closing her eyes, and shot the woman in her heart and had to serve 27 years for that. So I have, you know, and that was my favorite aunt. So I had to live with writing her poetry and writing things to her, you know, about how to, you know, how I could navigate outside of that system, but then help her navigate within the system. So um, we stayed close, you know, for a very long time. She moved to Florida. So she's, you know, down there, we don't get to see each other, but, you know, growing up with that, you know, since nine and then having, I also have a cousin named Rose who, uh, she used to get bullied a lot and we used to tell her, just come straight home. And she would say, I, I'm going to come straight home, but they keep messing with me on the bus. And one day she's standing on the corner in our neighborhood and the girl, there was four girls who jumped her and they decided they wanted to beat her up at that particular time instead of just talking. Or her sister ran out of the house and gave her how a kitchen knife and she ended up trying to defend herself and killed someone. So where you don't think violence is going to interfere or or be you know a part of your life it happens to all of us there are pieces where you know that shapes who we are that shapes how we interface and act with other people Mm -hmm. and that's what I try to tell my sons as well you know don't live in fear but also understand that there are other people out here who have experienced things and the way they think is based on what they've experienced what they the narrative that they have in their own you know life in yeah. their own neighborhood, in their own church, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as much as you like, but when you said that, I was like, oh, and I was like, it's just, it, but the thing is, is we do that all the time. It's like, oh, right. over and over again, you know, let's just, yeah. I, I, some of my family, my close to me was shot in a mugging and it's, it changes the way it, it changes your perspective, you know? Yes. Yeah. Sure. And especially in the black community where it's been happening over and over and over and over again forever. So, um, unfortunately, <clears throat> yeah, you, you, uh, you have such a wide variety of experiences with your career and everything and, and your family makeup. And that's, 
that's it's cool that you're uh, that you're continuing that work, you know, as as the company and supporting folks. And I don't, where do you find that you're um, like uh, what's kind of the most happening for you right now? Is it so, you know, like what, what are you kind of working on that's that's sort of bubbled up um, in the last fall? couple of things I'm working on is I am a super huge fan of the Odyssey. So one yeah. of the things that I did, so it's a new band that's coming out. Um, it's with uh, the Royal KJ and DJ Johnny Juice Rosado, which is our mutual friend. Yep. And um, I do a lot of, I guess you want to say fan uh, <laughs> bombing. <laughs> uh, I, I send, you know, as many uh, messages to people in my network as possible. Say, listen to the Odyssey, you know, uh, get them on your radio station. And my friend Rob Schwartz at Who Mag Magazine has been a really instrumental in really helping. They've gotten on TV in, in Philadelphia. They've uh, been on Who Mag, you know, so just, you know, that's one of my fun things to do. That's not the work. Right. Um, and I work with an artist and mentor, an artist named Harrison Clay, and he has a very, you know, kind of strong, um, what do you want to say? Aesthetic. His aesthetic is 90s R&B. Um, ah. He really is, you know, the kind of okay. guy who wears the tuxedos and, you know, yeah. sing croons to the ladies, that type of thing. Yeah. And yeah. He, came, he came from a background where um, before 40, he had a heart attack and didn't know he could even sing. And what they did was say, well, you need to go to uh, music therapy or some type of voice therapy to gather up your diaphragm and be able to breathe again because he had to have a bypass and a valve put in. Holy so, he he opened his mouth and they went, wow. <laughs> and the next day I got a call um, from one of my friends and he said, you know, I really need you to work with my little brother. And I said, well, who is this? You know, I'm not doing any music stuff right now except my own. And he said, no, I'm trying to tell you this guy, you know, he's a Joe witness, but he, you know, you really, you know, he's giving me all these qualifiers. I'm going, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And I met him and I just said, we're going to work together. And we have a really a, a big sister, little brother type relationship, mentorship. Um, he actually, when we were working on his album, he lived here in my office for a while. And so he was part of the family. And, you know, we get up every morning, do vocal training, that type of thing. And move forward to he's working on an album coming out. So it's you know it's really been a great process. Uh, when I first started out in music, I was working a lot more with hip hop and rap music, and I've kind of evolved over to more R&B, electronica, country, um, things that I actually listen to on a regular basis. So yeah. it, it means more to me because it's, you know, music that I'm going to play in my, you know, car. It's music I can play around my kids. It's, it's yeah. things that, you know, if I want a quiet night, I can put on that right. jazz record. You know what I mean? So it's mm -hmm. it's really evolved, and I, and I don't think it's with age. I think it's more with the maturity of my ear. Mm -hmm. um, and things I want to hear and words I want to hear too as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. And sometimes things that you want to have in your ear before you go to bed, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. And I also, you know, the other thing, a lot of people look at my pages and they say, um, you know, well, why are you at the range all the time? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do was marry, as I told you, we have a background in, in criminal justice and reform, is to, you know, teach people the proper use of weapons, go to the range, have people, you know, understand that, you know, it's not weapons that cause violence, it's people that cause violence. So, um, you know, I'm heavily involved in 2A and, um, you know, Second Amendment rights and things of that sort. And with Arizona being an open carry, what I did was um, you can carry a weapon you know, there are certain weapons we can carry in Arizona, but I went and got what's called a concealed carry permit. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you have to take classes. You have to go to the range. You don't have to go to the range, but we recommend that you go to the range and really learn, um, you know, different ammunition, different types of pistols, rifles, shotguns, that type of thing. And it's more for self-defense. But then in situations like we've been experiencing here recently with, with riots and protests, if a single female is traveling by herself and something were to happen, you know, you want to be prepared. Not to say something could happen, but that's mm -hmm. always the case in the back of my mind. If I'm driving downtown, like, okay, you know, what if something happens and I'm here in this car by myself? So it's been really helpful to me, um, you know, to get that education and then to be RAIN certified. Um, and then also to be able to marry that part with the executive protection, which I do for some celebrities. So okay. I'm very unassuming. And so people don't think anything. They'll see me and go, oh, she's probably a fan or she's probably somebody's girlfriend. And actually, I'm providing security. You know, my eyes are on everything and I'm watching. So th those type of things are 
you know, fun for me. It's not a job. It's not, it's not work. Right, <laughs> so, right, right. So it goes under the retirement. Yes. Correct. <laughs> I'm happily retired. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, you, you know, the, that is interesting. I think that, you know, the, there's been a lot of talk from people I've heard, you know, about just the guns, especially in the Second Amendment rights and whether or not it's, you know, like people are like, I don't know, should I get a gun? And I'm like, you know, people who have never said that before, yeah. you know, because I think people are scared on, yeah. on all levels, you know. I honestly think people, if they're afraid, I would, this is just my personal recommendation. Yeah. Instead of going out and getting a weapon, I would recommend you learn how to homestead or learn how to be a prepper or learn how to do something that's like, you know, learn a field medicine or something that's more home yeah. to, you don't have the danger aspect of it. Right. Holding a weapon in your hand is power, but it's not necessarily a good power. Yeah. It sometimes can feel very falsely, um, what do I want to say? It makes you get, I, I can understand how a cop could put a weapon in their hand and say, I have all the power. I am God. I am the, the chooser. I am the punisher. I am the, you know, the be all end all because being at the range, you can feel that power in that weapon. When that gun, just when that bullet discharges out of that weapon, there is actually an energetic burst that comes out of that. And people don't understand if they've never shot a weapon. Mm -hmm. yep. There is a flash, there's a bang, there's a there's a recoil, there's a lot of emotion that yep. goes with even shooting at just a target. Oh yeah. And so having to experience all of that when you've never shot a gun and you're in a situation, it, it really, it doesn't make sense because sometimes you're gonna hurt yourself. <laughs> you shoot a family member, the dog. Right. <laughs> You really need the education that goes with, you yeah. know, having that type of thing. Even with knives, I always tell people, you know, know what type of knife you can handle as a female or know what type of knife that you could handle. Maybe you have shoulder issues or you don't want that person to be that close to you. Well, then you're not going to, you don't need a knife. Yeah. And so it's, it's that type mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. I, I've been, I haven't shot in a, I've been skeet shooting. So oh. I know what that feels like. So I haven't shot like a handgun, but I, but it is, it's, the shoulder, the moment that everything it's, it is, it's something where you're like, I have all kinds of things I'm thinking right now about what just happened, you yes, know? Yeah. And there's emotion afterwards. You yeah. Know, there's consequences, there's guilt. There's, oh my, you know, I, I just hurt somebody. And if you have compassion, <laughs> you yeah. don't have compassion. Right, right. Have to that that. The door. Yeah. Completely. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but you know, those type of things, my grandmother, um, she owned one of the first boutiques in our town. I know we have a lot of firsts in our family, but she owned um, one of the boutiques in our family. And I remember just sitting with her and she said, you know, when people come in and steal, I don't want you all to tackle them or to, you know, embarrass them. What I'd like you to do is pull them over to the side. And there was sort of a back room where we could, you know, where people could try on clothes and that type of thing. I'd like you to pull them aside and ask what's their story. Hmm. And I'm looking at her because I'm only nine. So I'm going... I'm not asking anything. I'm calling the cops. And she said, no, don't do that first. You right. need to find out what would make somebody come into a small business. It doesn't matter if it's minority owned or not. It's a small business. We're bringing clothes to a town that doesn't have access to the latest fashions unless we bring them here from New York, Atlanta, Dallas, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And ask them why. Yeah. And if they say, I didn't have the money to buy it, then let them go. If they said it was for the thrill of stealing or, you know, whatever, then that's a whole different conversation. But right. we met so many children who would come in and they would steal on behalf of their parents or they would say, I didn't have any um, school clothes. I didn't have, you know, the latest fashions that everybody else was wearing. So I figured you guys could replace it with your insurance type thing. And that conversation that my grandmother said have with people really affects how I treat people now. I don't look at somebody and go, they're looting, they're rioting, they're protesting. Why? That's not the same why. I already know the why. Yeah. It's the, what are you targeting? What's next? What are we doing as a group? You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I, I'm, I'm asking those follow-up questions. I want to know, okay, now you're mad. You're getting all of this out. Right. What do we do with the rage? How do we take that rage? How do we take that emotion? And how do we you know, put that in a package that when we move forward, we're moving forward as a unit, as a movement, as a country, not just 
two or three individuals here in this, this state, two or three here, but we're really being heard. And that leads me to, you know, as I talked about, I've been a commissioner and some other things in politics. I was a commissioner for disability issues in Tucson. But one of the things we used to also do is work with our local representatives, uh, Raul Grajava, um, we have uh, Rosemary Gabagong, who we would not necessarily run their campaign, but we would be the voice of their campaign and try to explain to people why they need to vote. And so that's really my, if you want to say what my work is right now, it's trying to explain to people why our local leaders need to be, you know, replaced or for those who are already in office, get them educated, have them in on the discussions, have them in on, you know, how we move forward as a country. And so yeah. that's, that's sort of my passion right now, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. I, I was having a discussion with some friends about, you know, power and money. Yes. You know, and that what people like, change comes from many different things, but, but you have to understand power and money. Yes. And if you don't, aren't, aren't in power to make the rules, it's harder to change the rules. Definitely. What is that saying? Absolute power corrupts absolutely, I think it is. Yeah, some, yeah something some, like that. That, though, that resonates with me. I need to write that down so that I always remember that one. But I heard that a couple of days ago and I said, you know, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to keep saying that because I think people don't understand that money is really the root of a lot of this. And I don't mean money in the terms of currency. I mean money in terms of who has wealth and who does not have wealth. And that's why I mentioned the, you know, it's not really a black and white, left or right type situation. It really is a top bottom, you know, who's the top controlling everything and then who are the rest of the people. <laughs> because yeah. I always feel like the root of some of the issues that we're experiencing around racism don't necessarily come from a color issue. It comes from you shouldn't have that. And those type of conversations are what I'm having with my sons of it's not really, you know, you could be on the phone and talking to someone and they not know what your color is. But if they feel like they should have something you should not, then you're going to get into a power struggle on the phone. You're going to get into a, well, why not? I deserve. And so then you start talking about, well, why do you deserve this? Well, because I've worked for it. Well, I work for it, too. And so it becomes a you know, back and forth of well, my family. 20 generations ago did XYZ and that's why we're rich. Your family can do the same. And those kind of conversations I was not prepared to have with my kids, but I've had to have them because they are more privileged than say some of our neighbors who, you know, they don't get a meal every day. Um, we got offered during the summer where they have the summer programs where you, they will provide packages for the whole week. Mm -hmm. And some of the school members kept calling saying, well, why won't you come pick up your package? Are you too proud? You know, why won't you pick it up? I said, because there are other people that need it more than we do. Right. We always contributed to the food bank, but that's not to say that there are not times when I've gone, not had to go to the food bank. We've always contributed to other causes, but there's not times when I've not had to say, Hey, can you loan me blah, 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 because my light bill is going to get cut off. Yeah. We're not exempt from, you know, all of the, problems that you might consider with poverty. It happens because of the fact that there is power and not power. There's, you know, privilege and not privilege. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know, and we were, we were also talking about sort of the just unity versus division. Yes. You know, and that to me obviously is part of that power and money, yes. right? It's like, can, if we can get, get together we can have better conversations about that. If we're divided, we're going to continue to fight about all those things. Yes, right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being an ally. I don't like to call you an ally because I just like to call you a friend. But, um, you know, in the narrative of, of the political world we're in, I, I'd like to acknowledge, you know, I've always seen you be very positive and put up things that, to educate other people. And it's not just about, you know, racism, but also about womanism and, and about, you know, being in the business and, you know, trying to have a narrative that's always positive. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it. it I thank you. I hope to be an ally, and I take that moment. Take that moment. <laughs> no, I know. I thank you, and I think you know. I've just been talking, to, you know, to tons of people about all the things that are happening in the world right now, and you know, it's um, one of those things that I've been getting phone calls. Of people who are like, "How do I show up? Will you look at this?" It's da -da -da -da. and I'm like, and people, there's so much fear. I mean, I everybody, I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, I'm a 
fuck up and say the wrong thing or you know what I mean, you know what I mean? like and, and I think but like I keep saying to folks like just there's some golden rules of just don't be a jerk right right Get educated right you know and if you screw up say you're sorry and talk and about it right you know I, and yeah so it's just yeah but I appreciate that yeah I've, I'm 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 always very interested in in something you said earlier about story you know yeah. and your your grandma and you know, like she wanted to hear somebody's story. Right. Right. And that's, that to me, that's what I, that's why I want to start this podcast, you know, because right. I want to share people's stories yeah. and that's a powerful story um, of her doing that for other people. Cause that probably changed their lives. Yes. Right? And I've continued to help people after that. And, and that's not for a pat on the back. That's just the mm-hmm. something that I do. And it's not even natural. And, and I've had, some of my mentors and some of my coaches sit me down and say, you know, you kind of give so much of yourself. You forget to give to yourself mm-hmm. that, you know, you'll give your last piece of cornbread you know, to somebody or your last dollar. And then you're, you know, looking at like, Oh gosh, how am I going to get to work? And so I've had to learn how to balance that too. Sometimes when you have more than others, you have guilt because you're like, why me? Why, why was I not born in poverty? Why have I been able to do X, Y, and Z, but not at the level as the people in power? I'm still in the middle. <laughs> I'm still down here. You know what I mean? That type of thing. So, you know, I've had conversations with many people as well lately because I, I got called a name, let's just be straight, um, on Facebook. And I was really offended by it, not because the name didn't fit necessarily, but because the person who said it doesn't know me. Mm. They only based it on what I'm posting. And I said, so how about we have a conversation and I screenshot how many organizations I've funded, how many families I've fed, how many times I've had to call a friend of a friend in a police department and say, hey, that person's a good person. You know, they, they really have been, you know, trying to be on the up and up. You know, they messed up one time. Let's get them some some attorneys or some lawyers that we can really you know fight this particular thing. I've had people come back and thank me 10 years later. I've had mentors from when I was working for the defense company come back. I just had one last week. It was like, you changed my life. And I busted out in tears. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? And she said, you sat me down and said, be you and stop trying to compare yourself to others. There is no standard. You're, you're the standard. Whatever you want to achieve is what you have to achieve. And if you have to go get resources or you have to go get help, however that help shows up, maybe it's, you know, you apply for an internship that was only for minorities. Maybe you got into college and you got a little extra bump. Whatever that is that can make you be successful, don't feel guilty about that. Mm -hmm. Don't always look back and go, well, because I'm successful now, it was because of this, because it's not, it's a, it's a, an amalgamation of a lot of different things. It's your family background. It's the activities you were in, you know, in college. It's your experiences in life. It's, you know, were you assaulted or not assaulted? Do you, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of different pieces that, you know, make up the success of a person. Right. And so notice I'm speaking of personhood. I'm not, you know, just referring to women. I'm not referring just to women of color. This mm-hmm. is really a conversation, you know, about what a human is yeah. and, you know, what, what it means to be an American or live in America, what it means to have had systemic oppression for 500 plus years. And it's not just here in the U.S. I've traveled you know, around the world and in the diaspora, there's issues across yeah. where people are still slaves in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. There are still people who are being sex trafficked based on their color and others cities and other you know countries so you see it across the gamut it's not just you know a problem right now it's been a problem it's been a conversation it's been a you know but it it was never a public conversation it was always things that we talked about at the dinner table or at our cocktail parties type thing Mm -hmm. right now it's vocal now it's loud now it's on your you know smartphone now people are you know really concerned about well what about me and that's where I've tried to change the narrative. Um, even with the COVID crisis, I try to change the narrative because I have an autoimmune issue. I have fibromyalgia. And when you have fibromyalgia and diabetes, really those are two autoimmune issues that unfortunately work really against your body. <laughs> so I can't be around people who are coughing and sneezing regularly. 
forget what's going to be going on with the coronavirus and asking my friends for a simple thing of when you come to the house or if you come here, you have to wear a mask has been a fight. And I've had to lose some friends because I'm like, you're not thinking about me as a human. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking about me as your friend and your family. What you're thinking about is I don't want to. Right. But you're not protecting my kids. You're not protecting an elderly woman that I sit with sometimes and, you know, keep her coming and play bingo. You're not, whoever I might come in contact with is not just me. You're talking about groups of people that you're affecting. So even those conversations have become, you know, very volatile, very, you know, my rights, my rights, my rights. And I'm, I'm explaining to people, but if you look at the world as, you know, a microcosm, you look at the world as a system um, you know, that comes back to my Six Sigma <laughs> training. But if you look at the world as how, how you fit in it versus mm-hmm. how it fits you, then I really honestly feel that people would step back and be like, okay, I'm going to be inconvenienced for an hour while I'm at the grocery store. Then I can go home and do what I want. I'm going to be inconvenienced while I'm talking to Chandra at her house or dropping off food or whatever for maybe 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, think, thinking of it from that perspective versus, you know, always saying me, me, my, my, and, you know, how we can help each other, you know, understand how, what this world is coming to. Because mm-hmm. I wake up every morning and there's something new and I just want to say, 2020, fuck you. I don't want you anymore. <laughs> so to be honest with you, I just, I even, I have a meme that's on my phone that I said to one of my friends and it was like, you know what, I'm not even counting this year. If it wasn't the fact that I was turning 50, I would not count 2020 at all. <laughs> I think that's a, the feeling of a lot of people for sure. But yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it is, it is, a, it is, I know that people, man, all kinds of, just a, and that all of that stuff has gotten politicized and stuff as well. It's just, it's like, I think it's funny, I, I, the word empathy, it's come up. And I, I talk about that a lot with people. And, and since I was a theater major, you know, yes. theater is empathy, right? I did theater too. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, for whatever reason, the word empathy is, it's not an easy word to read or say. I know that sounds weird, but I, I'm a word nerd. So, um, and I know you are too. And it's like, just looking at that word that people are like, what does that mean? You know? And it's like, I sometimes wish it was a different word that was like fun to say and easier. Or I don't know. I, because I just am like, how can you not get this? Yes. You know, like walking in someone else's shoes yes. and, but truly understanding it too trying to at least, I mean, cause you can never really truly do it, but like, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. I, I'm curious your take. For me, um, empathy is almost like how, we, so we'll take it back to theater. How yeah. we used to have to prepare for a role mm-hmm. is you have to sort of get in the head of the writer. First of all, mm-hmm. the person who was a playwright, what the, what was their meaning behind what, how they created this character? Right. And then when you get into, so for example, um, I did Look Homeward Angel. And I decided I didn't want to be Madam Elizabeth because she was a prostitute, but she was actually one of the richest and strongest people in that particular play. So when I got told that, it changed my whole perspective on how I presented that role. And so I actually went down to North Carolina. I got in the shoes. You know what I mean, I really went to the places where they said this person had, you know, a brothel and this person, you know, went and got her clients and we went to the graveyard and some other things. And I, I couldn't be, you know, a madam, but I picked up her business sense and her sassiness and her, Oh, I understand why she did that. She was one of the few people of color in that town. And the only way she could make money legitimately was to unfortunately be in an illegitimate business. Right. Okay. I get that. I, I get that. And how it came across on screen, people were like, you were so elegant, but mm-hmm. you, you had a grittiness about you and you could tell you had either studied it or you knew somebody who had been through that before. And I said, I didn't know anybody who'd been through that before, but I had to study it and try to get in the shoes and understand yeah. what that person was going through at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's what empathy is to me. It's really almost taking on that, you know, acting role and saying, well, what if this happened to me? How would I feel about this? Mm-hmm. And then what would I do afterwards? Would I cry? Would I be angry? Would I want to run away? You know, what would be my response? And so, you know, as a therapist, I have, 
you know, even though I've not been practicing therapy in 20 years, I still have that background. So when I talk to people, I always tell them to come from a place of, if it makes you uncomfortable, you get that funny feeling in your stomach and you're like, that's not right. That's also empathy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, for sure. I need to talk to you for like another hour. I know. <laughs> you should always cut the interview. You know? <laughs> so good. Um, thank you for the time. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. So, yeah. yeah. Well, a, how about I ask you my last question? Okay. That I always ask everybody. Um, uh, part of this uh, to me about mavens and experts is looking at uh, what, if you can pinpoint a moment or a spark and a uh, person, place, thing, book, poem that, uh, and I know you, there's a gazillion, but you know, like something that, that you want to share with the listeners uh, about who's, uh, what seats you in this moment of who you are today, a moment or a spark. Probably my poetry, um, because it comes from what I'm experiencing at the time. And so sometimes as I, I hate to use the word empath too, because that's sort of like the new buzzword, but I can, when I feel the world, I have to shut down because my whole, it feels like my whole body is buzzing. I can hear like my ears are ringing. So I actually will have to go into a dark room, you know, turn everything off. And then sometimes I'll keep a recorder next to me and start either writing or I'll start singing. Um, and so those type of things, um, creativity is my spark. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Days, I'll have to read some of my poetry online to you. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you shared a little bit with me. So yeah, it's beautiful. So yeah. And thank you for trusting me to share that with me. It's awesome. So it's so good. Well, well, I want to talk again soon anyway, but thank you for doing this and sharing your story and career and, and your retirement. I keep, I, I shouldn't do air quotes around it. Cause I know you are retired. I'll do air quotes. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> you're doing so many wonderful things so anyway so thank you so much for being on the show today thank you and i love you heather thank you so much for just reaching out and always being positive absolutely love you back and uh, yeah we'll have all the good stuff that you talked about in show notes as well for everyone um uh, different things that we talked about so uh we'll have that done too so thank you again (laughs) okay all right (laughs) Awesome. Everyone, that has been another episode of the Mavens Do It Better podcast. And here is to another beautiful day on this big blue spinning sphere. Thanks, everyone. The original music on this podcast was created by Jesse Case.